the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeed. And he's happy to say uh, happy Tuesday after President's Day. Great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline for the 19th of February. Trust you had a great extended three-day weekend. And as we kick off what's essentially a new week for us, we welcome you to the program. We've got an exciting guest in studio, certainly no stranger to the KFAX microphones. But he's here, as as, as we typically down through the years have historically talked about what's going on in the pro-life movement, uh, many of the challenges in relationship to what is nothing short of black genocide, and we'll talk about that uh, no doubt during our conversation as well. But today we get to hear some of the backstory. You know bits and pieces. I know bits and pieces. Now all of those bits and pieces have been pulled together artfully so inside the pages of a new book called Black and Pro-Life in America, the Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter B. Hoy. Walter, good to see you again. I'm so excited to be here. We, we generally get a chance to visit around uh, <laughs> January. Um, yeah, yeah. Come uh, marking of uh, Pro-Life Month in January, of course. And uh, uh, today an opportunity to uh, get a chance to hear kind of the backstory, the story behind the story, wow. I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, I, and I guess, as I remarked to you when you came in studio, it's about time. <laughs> it's about time this finally gets put into print and an opportunity for, for readers to get a chance to know not only more about you, but more about the struggle. And I guess to the greater degree, the struggle that you and your wife, Lori, who will join us later, have been engaged in for a better part of two decades now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, standing up for life, and in particular calling out what has been, as I said a moment ago, nothing short of genocide in America, though sadly Mm. very few Mm. acknowledge it, and perhaps more troubling so, very few within the black community acknowledge it. Absolutely, and that is what's troubling. We're going to kind of do this in bits and pieces and shift around a little bit. Um, I want you to take me back, though. Uh, Born in Mississippi. Wow. Raised in Detroit. All right. You got out of Detroit, 1968. Good time to leave Detroit. Even better time if you lived in Chicago, but good time to, was, to leave Detroit and it, come to California. It was time to leave Detroit. And your um, your family moved to San Diego. They did. Why did Dad come out here? Well, actually, my, my dad broke the color line in 1968. The NFL had players, but they did not have anybody that looked like us in the front offices. So Buddy Young went to New York. Uh, headquarters, NFL headquarters in New York, and Daddy went to San Diego, the San Diego Charge. And uh, I guess that kind of sparked your interest in football as a young boy, <laughs> didn't it? I mean, eventually <laughs> yeah. you went back to Michigan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you played for Michigan State for a while, though that that career got short circuited, <laughs> and, and God probably had a big important hand in that. Oh, uh, he guess. had a big hand in that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you kind of grew up around the Chargers. Oh, I did. I did. I, I was in, in training camp. Uh, I, I hung out in the locker room. I, I traveled with the team. 
you know, I was I was in um, in camp with them. I was this is every kid's dream, them. you know that. Yeah, this yeah, is every. Yeah. Although in some cases, you know, they might substitute <laughs> the Oakland Raiders or the San Francisco Forty yeah, Nine. San Diego yeah. Chargers are okay too. Well, we were we were. It was just an awesome time. I I, I loved being in, in the games on the field. It was great. I loved football. And as that seed germinated, you eventually returned back to Michigan. I did. Played for a time, Michigan State. I did. What short-circuited your future football career? Well, I was I was playing wide receiver, uh, and I was really uh, wanting to play running back. Uh, but uh, with my height and stature, they had me playing receiver, and I really learned to appreciate the the game when when I got there. But ultimately, the Lord had put on my heart that I wasn't going to uh, do that in the future. And slowly but surely, he began to make it absolutely clear that I wasn't gonna gonna play. He let me have a you know a great game, a great catch. It, it was awesome. But after that, fantastic! It was a great catch. After that catch, I um I knew I knew I wasn't gonna do it anymore. And and what happened was that I got involved in the uh, MLK. I, I read every book. I, I was even gonna go uh, to Atlanta to the King Center. Uh, but the Lord had worked it out where the King Center was being renovated at the time I wanted to go. They weren't accepting any anybody in. And so I stayed at Michigan State and finished my master's degree. Eventually you came back to California, but mm-hmm. the Lord really sort of uh, finalized his, his seal, his imprint on you. He really did. And called you to the ministry. Was that a big struggle between your desire to play ball and God pulling at oh. your heart to head in a different direction, it a was very a, different direction? It was a huge struggle. He had probably been calling me for some time, but I, I loved the game. And while I, I was a Christian, while I, I went to church, while I you know enjoyed my time in church, I wanted to play ball, and I could play, and I was already there. I, I understood what it meant to be a pro because I was working out with the pros as a kid. I understood. I didn't even need an agent. I knew exactly what to do to get on the team. So at what juncture for you did God really crystallize in your heart and mind that your life was going to be very different than it was set out to be in the beginning? Well, what really did it for me in terms of the pro-life movement in, in that respect was the birth of my firstborn son. He weighed in at 2.1 pounds, and he was born a little less than six months. And at that point, the hospital had done all they could, and they were asking me to sign papers because they weren't going to do anything more from his death was inevitable. And so I went home that night, and I asked God to save the life of my son, and I didn't get an answer that night. So I got up early, like 4 o'clock in the morning, went back to the hospital in the preemie ward, and I was holding my son literally in the palm of my right hand. He was down to 1.9. It wasn't looking good for him. And what happened was that that's when God answered my prayer. Literally, he spoke to me, and he said, Walter, this is what's supposed to be on the inside of a woman. And at that point, I realized what abortion was and what abortion does. That quickening to your heart at that juncture, I mean, we we all kind of, I think, sometimes find ourselves in those places where 
Um, we negotiate with God. Well, if you give me this, I'll give you that. Yeah. Was there ever any negotiating for you? Uh, not after that. Uh, up until that time, I wasn't really paying attention. I was, you know, I was graduated. I had a master's degree. I was just working. Uh, but that that experience with my son, I, I'll never know what it's like to actually carry a child, but I know what it feels like to hold a child at 1.9 upon my hand and feel him move in my hand, and that changed my life dramatically. Had your life at all ever been touched by abortion prior to that, history in the family, girlfriends, any of that sort? I know that's a very personal question to ask. No, not at all. In in my family, we were uh, pro-life, but we just never talked about it. Uh, there, there. I never had uh, the situation where uh, the girl was pregnant. She wanted abortion. Matter of fact, I didn't even know really what abortion was. I, it just wasn't even on the radar at all. It, it re- literally wasn't until I was holding my son in the palm of my right hand, and when God spoke to me, I knew my life would never. And amazing how an encounter like that, when you're looking at life, um, part of which you contributed to, part of which Lori contributed to, and yet ultimately fully created in the very image and likeness of God himself. Absolutely. The light light bulb suddenly goes on, doesn't it? The light bulb went on when, when I looked at him at that moment. It was different. Beforehand, I was just noticing the bandages, the, the hospital apparatuses, the, the tubes, the needles. But that particular moment, I, I was desperate to hear from God. I, I wanted my son to live. And at that time, I was beholding him. I was looking at his eyes and his fingers and his toes. And, you know, he looked just like me. And I was, instead of just noticing everything around him, I was actually seeing him probably for the first time. Mm. And at that point, that's when it was clear. Walter Hoy is in with us uh, in studio today, and uh, Lori is going to join us momentarily when she has uh, finished getting some warm water out there for her tea. <laughs> probably get listening to one of the other stations, yeah, doesn't realize we're yeah. talking about her. Yeah. Uh, a brand new book out called Black and Pro-Life in America, The Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter B. Hoy. Um, it's not only the story of his journey um, from, uh, as we mentioned, Mississippi right. to Detroit right. to Southern California and from a heart after football to a heart after God, but most importantly, the steps that God has taken him through uh, in becoming a key leader in America today for the pro-life movement within the African-American community. We'll talk a bit about some of the challenges and struggles there. We'll also get a chance, in addition to Lori joining us, we'll get a chance to meet the author of your new Yay. book. And we'll do that right after we take care of a little traffic for you. Let's head over to the KFAX Traffic Center 516 and the latest with Nick Dominici. Nick, how are we doing out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, welcome back to the conversation. Walter Hoy with us today in studio, and uh, the good-looking half has joined us as well. Lori is here. <laughs> yes, she is. How are you? Uh, did you get a chance to listen to anything outside? Anything we need to correct so far just no, to set the record straight? Doing a good, good job. Good. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, take me back to when the two of you first met. I met uh, Lori while I was working at Pac Bell 
uh, in San Diego, and she was literally working for Pac Bell in uh, San, San Francisco Ramon, or and San moved Francisco. to San Ramon. Yeah. All right. All right. And what happened was um, uh, I was working with, with the mainframe, literally with the mainframe, and she was one of the programmers for an application running on the mainframe. And there were times when her group had literally needed something from, from the mainframe, from where I was working. And it was just a phone call at first, but eventually she had to come to San Diego. <laughs> yes, she did. And that's when I first laid out. There was eyes something on about that voice over the wire. And, uh, I, I, I'll let her tell that. Uh-huh. Oh, Come yeah. on, Laurie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Walter, was, Walter would, whenever Walter called me, I knew something was wrong because the shift that he worked in operations was batch processes. And so it was like 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and he was always so very nice, you know, how you doing? But I know ultimately you want me to wake up because you want me to fix something. So you're talking to me so I will, like, kind of come out of the fog and log on to the computer and figure out what's wrong. And one of my coworkers did something so horrendous. She caused our system to come down. And this system, mind you, cost Pac-Bell a quarter of a million dollars an hour if it came down. And if it came down, it took an hour for it to come back up. So automatic. And she did something so bad that the group in San Diego said the only person they would talk to was me. And so even my boss, I mean, his counterpart, they wouldn't talk to. So they decided they were going to send me to San Diego as the sacrificial lamb to try and mend (laughs) the rift between the groups. Yeah, And so... um, and Walter picked me up at the airport, and it was hilarious because the day I was supposed to fly, we had a system problem. My flight was delayed. I mean, all these things just, like, went wrong. And I did finally get there and meet Walter. And, um, you know, they showed me around, showed me what they do. And then our group proffered an offer for somebody from their group to come back to San Ramon and see what we do, kind of get the mutual understanding of our impact on one another when we do certain things. So. So where most people have lots of reasons to be angry at right. TNT, you guys say, God bless Pac Bell, Ma Bell. Exactly, exactly, yeah, that's right. So moving the story along, um, eventually you guys decide there's more than just a telephone interest yeah. here. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, God says, I got, a, I got a special blessing for you. He did. I asked her to marry me, and she said no. Really? Your, your, your number was busy at the moment, huh? I <laughs> well, there was a whole lot going on in his life that I was just like, you know what? I grew up in that kind of, you know, step-parent you know, environment, and I didn't know that I didn't want to live that as an adult kind of thing. But um, God literally wrecked my car and made me, I mean, he, he t- took my car out of commission such that I could not even get to work without hooking up with Walter to get a ride to work. So it was kind of like I was forced. And the mechanic, I know he lost, thought he lost his mind. He had my car for weeks. They literally took it apart, put it back together. Nothing they did. Walter's probably made paying the car the table, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was like a challenge. It was like, no, no. Just leave a few bolts out when you put it back yeah, together, would you? I mean, and it drove him crazy. And it wasn't until... Um, and it was, I think it was Thanksgiving when he first asked me, and it was close to Christmas when I just finally, it's like, okay, all these things are going wrong, 
And, you know, maybe God is trying to tell me something. And I reconsidered, and my mechanic, you know, didn't get any more gray hair. The car actually worked, and uh, you know, we went forward <laughs> from there. But it was hilarious. So initially, she really only wanted you for your transportation. That's, that's the best I could do. <laughs> okay. right. That's the best I could Thank God Uber didn't exist yeah, in those exactly. days. Thank we might you. not be sitting here. I know, I know you're right. That's true. <laughs> you mentioned, Walter, about the experience of holding your your premature mm. son in your hand and how that really quickened your in your heart. God used that experience to really speak something profoundly mm. to you about life. Mm. Walk me through then the the sense of awakening that takes you to I'm going to go on a journey together with Lori and we're going to give voice to those that have no voice. How does that start? Well, it started in my church. I, I began to realize that we were having conversations in the parking lot that we didn't have in the sanctuary. Mm-hmm. And that was started to bother me. At, at first, I didn't think much about it. But after that experience, uh, abortion was one of those conversations in the parking lot. And I kept saying, you know, we really should be dealing with this uh, from a scriptorial uh, standpoint. The, the Bible speaks very clearly about it about God and about life, and we were never dealing with it. Yet there was just heartache after heartache, uh, mothers, fathers, young women, young men. You know, families were being destroyed and broken, and it was just a parking lot conversation. Uh, so we began to put conferences together, and one of the first conferences we had uh, it was called Issues That Matters Conference, and we were only going to talk about issues that matter. It was just parking lot issues. And Star Parker was one of the mm-hmm. first speakers. Dr. Clenard Childers from New Jersey, he was, you know, he came with, with Star. And together they turned the church inside out. And when they did that, I began to realize I could, I could do more. There was more I, I could do in um, California than I was doing. And I started promoting the very first Walk for Life in San Francisco. It was going to take everybody in my church uh, to the very first walk. It turns out that nobody wanted to go. And while I had the flyers up and everything else, then then I had a scheduling conflict myself. But the very second year, I didn't care. I was going to go no matter what. And I did, and we had a couple of members go with us, and oh, my goodness, uh, that's when life really began to change because after that, my goodness, I, I get a call, and eventually that call leads me to that clinic in Oakland. When did you? When did it come on your radar screen, Walter? And I, I made reference to this in my opening remarks that the issue of abortion, while certainly vital and critical to all people, all walks of life, and touches all walks of life. Absolutely. Rich, poor, educated, geniuses, you name it. But when did you make the connection that the one arena, the one subset that had received the greatest impact to the point of fitting in that unfortunate term genocide Mm. was the black community? When did you begin, when 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 did it come to you the understanding or the realization that abortion had so disproportionately impacted the black community in America. I was standing outside the, the uh, on the sidewalk uh, holding my sign, God loves you and your baby, uh, in front of the abortion clinic. 
I'm only out there one day a week, two hours. All, all I had, had church duties, had a lot of things to do. But I had those two hours, and so I did that. Uh, but this one particular uh, time, there were the abortion clinic had like 27 appointments. And I was thinking, there's just no way they could do 27 abortions, you know, within that two-hour time span. They couldn't. What had, what had happened was this. The sisters had heard that there was a black preacher standing on the public sidewalk literally helping the women. And they were coming left and right. They were literally waiting for me to finish with one, helping one, and then the other would walk right on up. And it began to dawn on me. I said, well, my goodness, they, you know, how can there be all this uh, attention? How could there be all these appointments there? And at the same time, uh, they were predominantly black. I mean, out of 27, there's what, 24? 25? 25 uh, of them. And I said, my goodness, I need to pay more attention. And I started doing the research, and it became painfully clear what it was. Was it a shock to you when you saw how disproportionate the numbers really are? It was. I mean, I, I, I wasn't at first surprised that there was, you know, black women going to abortion clinics. I, there were white women going. There were Latino women going. There were just women going to the abortion clinic. What, what got me that one day, that one day, was that it was 25 out of 27 that one day in that two-hour time period. And they weren't coming to get an abortion. They were coming to get help, and we were helping them. That, uh, that clinic has had an interesting, mm. <laughs> an interesting mark in and on your life. Mm. Uh, we'll talk a bit about that when we come back after the break. Walter Hoy is with us today in studio. The new book is called Black and Pro-Life in America, The Incarceration and Exon- Exoneration of Walter B. Hoy. A brief timeout, an update on traffic. Back with more as Lifeline continues. Get a look at the latest here, 530 from KFAX, and uh, the latest now with Nick Dominici. Nick, tell us what's up. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back, 532. We continue on our conversation. With us today in studio is Lori Hoy, Walter Hoy, the book Black and Pro-Life in America, The Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter Hoy. I mentioned earlier that it's about time that story be told, and there's much more to it. You haven't even gotten to the the nitty-gritty details yet, but I want to bring into the conversation the author of this new book, uh, Rob Artigo, and a name and a voice that you certainly, uh, if you're a longtime Bay Area radio listener to... I won't mention call letters, but somewhere between 800 and 820 on the AM dial, uh, you'll recognize the voice. Robert, how did Walter's story first come to your attention, and, and what said to you at that moment? Boy, this thing is this thing has got to be shared with everybody. Yeah, obviously I knew about Walter because of my, my years of reporting in the Bay Area. I knew of Walter's story, and I even covered a... Uh, a rally, a pro-life rally, I think before the Walk for Life back in probably 2009-ish, uh, where they did some, they hang out on the steps of the, the federal building in San Francisco, and they had kind of a, a really nice little rally there, and I suggested in the radio station that we go over there and, and do that, because if it was, uh, so, you know, Occupy, fill in the blank, they'd have 50 reporters out there, they'd outnumber the people on the street corner, but a pro-life thing, they course they're not going to have anybody out there so i said why don't we do that we never do it so we went out there and i saw walter and i I don't remember specifically if i ended up interviewing him but i interviewed several people there and uh so that was just kind of my little in passing 
And as my radio career in the Bay Area was obviously winding down, I was looking for other ways to continue my career in some way, shape, or form. And, And I had been pursuing writing books and writing screenplays for years. And finally, somebody asked me, if I knew the story of Walter Hoy, and I said, yeah, yeah. This happened to be a publisher in San Francisco. They said, well, we're just wondering if you might be interested in writing it. And, of course, I said, yes, I'm interested in looking at it. I do know about the story. And and as they were describing it to me and the research that I did by just looking up news stories on the Internet, this is a story that obviously required somebody to be an investigator, to be a serious journalist at the same time, to tell an honest and truthful story and, and be factual. And and it turned out that it, it was – I was the ideal person for this job, and I was grateful that they offered it to me. So the people have asked me, how did I end up writing the book? You know, And I, I you know have to attribute that to the Holy Spirit just guiding me right in there and, and uh, bringing me in for a landing on, the, on it. So. As you began to look into Walter's life and sort of peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak, any surprises there? Well, I mean – it would be a surprise if there weren't an infinite number of surprises that were in there for me. And, and imagine I am a white male, grew up in California. I was born in San Francisco. Um, I grew up in a very diverse area. I think, you know, some schools I went to, I, I was actually in the minority as being a white person. There were more Latinos, for example, in the Santa Clara school that I was in. And then I think there were a, a, of the uh, white students. And I, but I thought as a journalist and a, a uh, kind of a, a, a amateur historian, if you will, but a guy who really appreciated American history, that I understood the damage that has happened to the black community in American history. And when I, my eyes were really opened up when I learned about Reconstruction, you know, following the Civil War, we had a period of Reconstruction which ultimately, in my view, was the, the beginning of the end of liberty for blacks for another hundred years in America. The biggest surprise to me was that blind spot because I didn't know how that came about, who was responsible for it, and ultimately the damage that it did, that we're still feeling that today because we didn't get it right then. We failed to... We, we failed to achieve the promises that were made after the Civil War. Emancipation Proclamation, boom, you're free. All right, here we go. Schools, we're going to get you jobs. We've got people coming in from the north. They're going to they're teach people. We've got jobs going. People are, are working on things. The next thing you know, that's all shut off. Black Codes, Jim Crow. Yeah, we, to another we moved hundred from years. sort of the, the, the public face of slavery to now just doing it in private. Yeah. And then along that same lines was the rise of the Klan. So there's a political aspect to this whole experience that happened after the Civil War, all the way up through the 20s. Great story, and sad, shocking story in the book that talks about uh, how those, those uh, elements in the South intertwined with Walter's family in a very tragic and unfortunate way, but how the lessons of a society that cannot fulfill its promises and to deal honestly with each other, that that was something that that I I always knew that there was something with the way that politics ran in this country. But I didn't understand why so many black people in this country 
have an interaction with a white person and automatically assume there's race, some kind of race thing built into it, some kind of bias built into it, or racism built into it. And I, and I thought I understood a lot of things about race, but that was a real eye-opener to me. So to answer your question, I think that ultimately my ignorance about fairness in this country, true fairness, and true honest dealing with your fellow Americans, that was a, that was a real eye-opener for me. We touched, Walter, on the fact that there's a disproportionate number of yes. black babies yes. that are aborted in America. And I'm wondering on the heels of what Rob just said, uh, that sense of ongoing oppression, mm-hmm. that we have publicly changed laws, we've eliminated uh, legalized slavery, things mm-hmm. of this sort. Uh, we've even said, let's wipe out the Jim Crow laws, that while mm-hmm. they might not exist in the book, they're very much alive in spirit in many parts of this country. Very much so. But, but I wonder if there are degrees to which what he just touched on is contributory to a, a profound lack of self-worth that as a result creates an atmosphere that fosters these disproportionate numbers. In other words, if a woman doesn't see any value in herself and in her life, the father of the child, therefore, why should I see much value in bringing a baby into this world to face more of this? Is there a connection? Absolutely. There's no question that there is connection. And what's disheartening for me. It's not that that connection exists. It, it does exist. Uh, it's that we're not dealing with this uh, biblically in our, in our churches, in our sanctuaries, where we could find God's model, where we could find God's answer, where we could find uh, the answer to the problem. We can overcome it. It, it, it. I'm not surprised that there's sin in the world. I'm not surprised that uh, there have been there are racial conflicts, particularly here in America. That's not surprising at all. But that's never been enough to hold us back. And so to answer your question, yeah, um, that definitely is a part of it. But there's other parts of it, too, that I think need to be addressed as well. Why do you think, in your opinion, and I don't ask this question to get you into trouble (laughs) or (laughs) get me into trouble with lots of email coming in, but why, why do you think that the church has not taken a greater role? I mean, we've talked about this mm-hmm. in terms of, of reconciliation. Um, and, and, it, and it would seem to me, if you look, for example, at the critical role that the church played in the 1950s and 60s, yeah. arguably, from my perspective, uh, people like Dr. King, the church in the South, mm-hmm. really helped give impetus to the civil rights movement. They did. Uh, it was the driving force behind it. So the church played a very loud, strong role in standing up for civil rights. Why does it then seemingly pull back or sort of recoil from the opportunity to take that same role in standing up for life? The, the number one reason is that church leadership is guilty. What I mean by that, they're post-abortive. There's an abortion in their life somewhere. So the preacher who is not to pick on a church, but the preacher who is a closet drunk, who goes home and starts drinking, getting into the communion wine, probably not doing a lot of sermons about abstinence and staying away from alcohol, probably doesn't touch the subject at all. At all. 
So the degree to which, again, we're back to this disproportionate number right, of right. black Americans who have had their lives either directly or secondary, tertiary, touched by abortion. Absolutely. Are afraid to get up and say anything because what? Too many people in the pews have been impacted by this. They might all disappear. And I, too, have had my life touched by this or I've had a daughter or a spouse. Absolutely. It, it, it can be a, a wife. It could be a mother. It could be a son. It could be a daughter. It could be somebody in the pew. And when you take a look at uh, the majority of the work that's actually done in the church, you find out that women do a vast majority of the actual work that the church is doing. When they done. say that uh, 20% of the people do 80% of the work, mm. 75% of the, of the 80 are the women, right? <laughs> doing a, fan, a fantastic job. And so this is one of those issues where if you're guilty of it and the reason why you can move forward is that you've taken on and embraced Planned Parenthood's talking points, that's what allows you to sleep at night. It's not going to be something you preach about from the pulpit. Can I offer something as well in that area? We have to imagine, though, going back to the 1920s and 30s, where a lot of this gained steam. Margaret Sanger needed help in the black community to get things going with her plans for abortion in those population control in in the black community. Mm -hmm. And so she knew, and she's on the record as saying this, the Library of Congress has letters and and writings from her that says they needed to get preachers in the black community on board. So many people, and and this is, I, I feel strange throwing this out there in the sense that um, I'm not Walter saying it. I'm just a, a guy who was a writer who did research. And, but there's a lot of uh, these folks who have been co-opted, either financially or have bought into this idea that have been sold. Uh, we talked about W.E.B. Du Bois, who was, an, uh, who was a socialist, a known socialist, and an associate of Margaret Sanger, who back in the 30s helped get this message out and helped... Uh, formulate this uh, idea of acceptance within the black community for what they were doing when she was dealing with socialists on one hand and the eugenicists on the other hand who wanted to destroy the black population. So that, that's where I see it. I mean, it is a, it's definitely well, well, what Walter's talking about in terms of what's happening on the pulpit, but it's also ingrained in the system where you sort of accept, okay, well, this is where we're at. We're all, we've, we've bought into it, so now that's our role we have to play. And sadly, shockingly, their formulas have been very successful. I mean, let's face it. We've seen phenomenal growth rates in just about every minority group in America. Uh, Latinos in states like California very predominantly. Certainly Asian population in the Bay Area, significantly so. And yet if you look at the birth rates Mm. for the African-American community... Not only over the last decade that you and I have been talking, but I've been discussing this subject for 30 years on this station, going back over 30 years. And you look at it and say, isn't it interesting in the, you know, 1990 census, African-Americans accounted for approximately 13 percent of the population. And that number is repeated in in 2000 and 2010. And I guarantee you it's going to be the same thing in in 2020. There's no growth rate. And that's because as much as there is growth, keeping up with that is the abortion rate. Uh, Absolutely. If we're going to get right right down to it, 
using the abortion industry's data itself, Alan Guttmacher, former president of Planned Parenthood, according to the Guttmacher too, we're talking about 28% of all abortions are coming from my community, yet we're 12, 13, 14% tops of the population. But if you go to the CDC, it's not 28. The CDC says, no, it's 35. But then when you take a look at the CDC, there's like five states that legally do not have to report. And California is one of them. And California does more abortions than any other state in the in the union. It's so difficult that our people are no longer the, the leading minority. We've now come down to the second leading minority. We're number two. And right now, we are no longer replacing ourselves. We've dropped below that total fertility rate of 2.1. We're down to 1.8. Wow. And if we don't stop, I mean, if we continue to abort our babies at the pace we are doing right now, by 2015, we can drop down to 1.3. And when you get down to 1.3, Craig, you're taking a look at irreversibility. And, and as Robert points out, the science of eugenics, good old-fashioned racism, <laughs> are certainly driving forces behind what Margaret Sanger was. I mean, listen, if, if Adolf no Hitler admired her writings, you <laughs> yeah. know. Yeah. Scary. If you if you look at that and say, okay, there's 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 nothing but racism mm-hmm. behind the motivation of the sort of the the, the formative years of of Planned Parenthood, and that 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 vein runs deep and continues to this day, and yet as you point out, there becomes a juncture at which the black community can and should stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do this to us anymore. And yet, sadly, there's a level of complicity. They're, they're complicit. Why? Well, I guess it goes back again to that notion of it, it just touches too close to home? Well, it, it does go back to that. And I wanted to, to say this real quickly, that, that Rob is right. When you take a look at the, the early 1900s, you're talking about Margaret Sanger and the Negro Project, not the Latino Project, not mm-hmm. the white man mm-hmm. project, you know, the Negro Project. And so uh, since then, we've bought into this well I need to have fewer children if I'm going to be able to further my position here in America. When biblically, that's just the complete opposite. It's God blessing you. And the larger we are, the stronger we are. And when we embrace biblical models, everything changes in our life. I I marry the the woman. I I provide for her. I, I raise the family I protect my children. That changes everything. And the ultimate goal, certainly from a biblical standpoint, is family is everything. everything. The ultimate reward is working towards Every, yes. the family unit. And yet there has been propaganda promulgated by the likes of Margaret Sanger and all that have followed in exactly. her footsteps that essentially has completely flipped that from God's ideal to the enemy saying, no, 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 no. This is not all about the family. It's all about you. Exactly. This is about what's convenient for you, doable for you, acceptable for you. For you. You. And that's the problem. Let's pause on that point. We're going to come back to more of the conversation. Walter Hoy today in studio, along with wife Lori and the author of this brand new book written about Walter's life, Black and Pro-Life in America, The Incarceration and Exoneration of Walter B. Hoy. Robert Artigo is with us. We take a time out, get you updated on some traffic here. The latest right now with Nick Dominici in the KFAX Traffic Center. Nick. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. 
All right, back to the conversation. Walter Hoy with us today in studio, along with his lovely wife, Lori, and author Robert Artigo. Rob has written a new book on Walter's life and really Walter's role in the pro-life movement that uniquely touches on so many topics related to this issue of life that many leaders in the church today, many leaders within the African-American community, for that matter, are afraid of, terrified of, even discussing. The book is called Black and Pro-Life in America and newly released, by the way, by Ignatius Press. You'll find it available bookstores throughout the Bay Area, Amazon.com, and also through issuesforlife.org. Can they order the book there, too? Oh, yeah. They can go to the website. Go to issues, the number four, life.org, and you can order it there. Issues, the number four, L-I-F-E, dot O-R-G. Let's talk about the big experience. Mm. We're back in 2008. Okay. You have, as you mentioned earlier, in free hours on the weekends, <laughs> been showing up to 200 Webster Street. Tell us what's at 200 Webster Street. At 200 Webster Street, there was an abortion clinic, a privately owned, privately operated abortion clinic uh, right there in Oakland. And I was I was asked to go because it was an experiment uh, the, the, there were pro-lifers that were already there, sidewalk counselors were there, but the sisters wouldn't stop and talk with them at all. And so they wondered, they wondered, they wondered. After seeing me at the Walk for Life West Coast in San Francisco, they called my office and they wondered if it would be harder to walk by your pastor, your priest, your deacon, your elder, someone they recognized in the pulpit. Could, could you walk by your preacher on into an abortion clinic. Mm-hmm. It was an experiment. It was a project. I said, sure, I, I'd be happy to go and, and and be a part of that. And so I was going out there, and at first they said, well, don't worry about it. The police hardly ever show up. <laughs> and at, at first it was true. But the moment I came out there, the police started coming more. Walter showed up, and so more, too did OPD. <laughs> and more, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, over the course of that time, there's been a lot written about you, Um from the time of your arrest to your trial, your eventual conviction, um, that characterized you as a rabble-rouser, a troublemaker. Mm. You're out there protesting. You're out there blockading the clinic entrance. In fact, they, they, they essentially brought you up on charges of violation, a violation of the city's so-called bubble law, the right. freedom of access to clinic entrances law. Um, any of those adjectives? Did any of that describe what you were actually doing? No, no, not at all. And literally, they created a law uh, just for me being out there. Uh, it was it was so ridiculous that when I was actually in court now, there wasn't one woman complaining. No one had been prevented. No access had been blocked. Nothing. The only testimony against me in court was the executive director of the abortion clinic and by God's grace and mercy, we just so happened to have the two days that were in question, legally in question. We had videotape of the whole time I was out there, and we impeached her testimony, the abortion clinic's executive director's testimony with videotape. But it didn't make a difference because it was pretty obvious after a while that I had to go to jail no matter what. You and I spoke a couple of times by phone prior to your arrest. Mm-hmm. We talked to Lori while you were at Santa Rita. Um, and I recall asking you at the time, are you blockading, are you preventing women from <laughs> physically 
walking into the clinic and your answer was always no i'm i'm on public property they can easily walk around me i'm i'm nowhere near the entrance to that clinic that somebody could say i can't get around walter hoy to get in oh absolutely as a matter of fact the day i was arrested the police drove up to a couple of police cars they rushed right to the door because they saw a bunch of people in orange vests standing in front of the clinic uh door and they went over to arrest them and and they said <laughs> Oh, no, no, not us. It's the guy it's, 200 feet over there. It's, it's that, that black man over there. Yep. Mm-hmm. And they put their head down, police officers put their head down, and they walked over to, to get me. So I, I was never blocking the entrance. I was never blocking the door. I never prevented anyone from going in the clinic was, if that was their sole desire. Yeah, give them the punchline, Walter. <laughs> the, if it wasn't so tragic, the punchline is that the people who were the alleged victims at the trial didn't know they were the victims at the trial or even before the trial. Right. In fact, there were two clinic escorts, volunteer escorts, the people in the orange vests. Mm-hmm. The, he was, Walter was charged and convicted of violating the eight feet space around two people who were volunteer clinic escorts who followed him around the sidewalk. They followed him around the sidewalk to block his face, to block his message with a whiteboard. So the two people that were following him around, he was violating of their space. So the very law <laughs> that was passed by the city of Oakland, ostensibly to protect women's right to right. access to right. a clinic, that if they so chose to have an abortion, right. that no one, including Walter Hoy, could get in their way, um, they were not in play at this whatsoever. No. <laughs> and in fact, other than somebody who might have had a conversation with you voluntarily and said, you know what, I'm thinking, I'm changing my mind, I'm not doing this today, and turned on heel and walked away, all completely under their own volition. Absolutely. What literally happened was this. Uh, They would walk up to me, they'd see my sign, and they'd say, preacher, because they knew I was a preacher. They'd say, preacher, is it true that God loves me? I'd say, yes. Then they'd say, well, if it's true that God loves me, does, does God love my baby? And it was, for Mama, it was always her baby. It wasn't cells or a clump of tissue, anything like that. Does God love my baby? And I'd say, yes, God loves you and your baby. And then she'd look me square in the eye, and she'd get serious. She says, well, if it's true that God loves me, if it's true that God loves my baby, will you help me? And when we did, that made all the difference mm-hmm. in the world. Does it strike you how duplicit all of this is, mm-hmm. it, it, particularly from the viewpoint that oftentimes, and you'll hear it from, from uh, uh, Planned Parenthood to NARAL to everybody in between, this is about choice. Mm-hmm. We're already hearing this well in advance of the 2020 election. This is all about protecting a woman's right to choose. So if a woman decides at some point, I think I will have an abortion— now I choose not to have an abortion. Isn't that essentially helping them make the choice that's right for them? Absolutely. And, and many of them, after talking with us, made their choice not to have an abortion. And that got to be a problem. It sounds like at the end of the day, instead of being charged with a violation of the bubble law in the city of Oakland, uh, they should have charged you with interruption with commerce. <laughs> because essentially a woman that decided at the last minute, you know, maybe there is another avenue here for me. Keeping the child the term, putting the child up for adoption, keeping the child for myself, whatever conclusion that they might draw. That did not include the component 
of terminating the child's life, that essentially your 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 crime here, I'm doing my air quotes, you can't see it on the radio, but your crime here is interrupting their Congress. They're losing business because of you. There's, there's no question about that. I never met one woman while I was on the public side that wanted, literally wanted, couldn't wait to get in and do it. They, they were always questioned. They weren't sure. And in many cases, you could clearly say they didn't want to do it. And so if you had the help that they needed, if, if it didn't matter what it was, if it was a doctor, if it was a nurse, if it was prenatal care, if they, if they just wanted to be around other women with that, sometimes it was groceries, sometimes it was just a place to stay where they could actually think about it. It didn't matter. When you helped her and she could make her own decision many, many times, they decided not to have an abortion. Laura, you're the single female voice in the room here, so set us guys straight. Okay. Am I missing something here? That shouldn't all of these individuals who celebrate choice, Mm -hmm. who say we need to keep a certain composure uh, of the Supreme Court to protect choice, Mm -hmm. shouldn't they be celebrating this, that women, essentially is what your husband is saying, are being empowered to exercise their free will, to exercise their choice? No prescribed outcome, simply exercising choice. Whether you choose to abort, choose to keep, it's still under the larger moniker of choice. Shouldn't women be celebrating this? What am I missing? Well, the abortion industry doesn't want you to choose anything but them. They don't want you to see that there are other options. They don't want you to see that they're outnumbered by pregnancy care centers. I mean, it's like six 16 to 1 or something like that. They don't want you to know that there's any other help other than what they deem as help because it's monetarily motivated. It's not only big business, oh, but yeah. as it's both Robert alluded to and Walter earlier, mm-hmm. there's also an emotional investment in all of this. Oh, yeah. That I suppose for a lot of women, um, like the so-called escorts, right. I would bet right. you'd find every one of them are post-abortive. Oh, yeah. And every one of them volunteer because it makes them feel better. Right. I mean, when we were kids in high school and we got into trouble, didn't it feel better when you got all your Somebody friends involved with mm-hmm. you too? Yeah. We're all going to the principal's office together because exactly. we all got caught smoking behind the boys' room. Yeah, but it also helps them to justify the choice that they made. As long as somebody else is making the same choice, that maybe I didn't make a mistake. Maybe I didn't. I shouldn't have gone in another direction. Maybe I, you know. I mean, it's it's just justification. If someone decides that abortion is wrong for them, then they have to question why did they choose abortion. And you indicated earlier, Walter, mm-hmm. that many that you stopped and talked mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. didn't say, I'm struggling with a decision about eliminating the blob of tissue. Not at all. Mm-hmm. No. It was always my baby. It oh, was yeah. always my baby. There's that what maternal yeah. instinct, I oh, guess yeah. we would call it, Laurie, oh, yeah. that, that says, mm-hmm. contrary to what even some of the phony science says, oh, yeah. deep down, you know, and I think this is one of the reasons why you've seen them push back against pro-life clinics that have now opened up centers that provide sonograms. Right. Mm-hmm. Because once you can look and count, look, 10 toes, 10 fingers, mm-hmm. my goodness, that's not a blob of tissue. That looks just like a baby. Exactly. Suddenly it becomes a game changer. Absolutely. Now, on the subject of choice, you know, ironically, the state of California was recently fined or told to pay pro-life groups $400,000 because they created a law. uh, 
it, which was uh, pursued by our attorney general in the state of California, the fact the Reproductive Fact Act required pro-life groups to provide abortion information mm-hmm. at their clinics. Which but I, you would uh, never have a law in California that would require the abortion clinics to have information about alternatives to abortion. When they first argue, started arguing that, uh, that law, I said, you know what, I'm going to stand up in favor of it, and I'm going to encourage the California state legislature and then Governor Brown to please sign it. Because if they want to get the true facts out and they want to make available at pro-life clinics across the country, or state rather, information that there's an abortion clinic down the street, so they sh- should they so choose, that while we're doing this, that making sure that at every Planned Parenthood clinic there are signs that say mm-hmm. there are other alternatives to destroying your baby's life, and up the block is the you know X Y Z you know uh, pregnancy choices clinic or whatever. Exactly. Uh, but then I found out much yeah. to my not chagrin, but but you know disappointment that oh yeah no it doesn't work that right. Way. The inherent they're only going to promote one side. Yeah, the inherent problem with that is <laughs> that if you don't have an abortion at that clinic. That money, that the clinic doesn't get the money, and therefore, therefore, that money doesn't end up in the coffers of the politicians. So it's only about mm-hmm. choice, provided that you choose abortion. Yep, any exactly. other choice completely invalidates any notion right, of choice. Yeah. Can I ask all three of you to stay for another segment? I'm here. Lock the doors, sure. Jarrell, in case they change their mind. Uh, Lori Hoy, along with Walter Hoy, tonight in studio with us, a look at a brand-new book just penned by Robert Artigo called Black and Pro-Life in America. We'll take this time out back with more after an update on some headline news. A look at traffic first, though. And we've got Nick Dominici to give you the latest on your Tuesday ride home. What's up, Nick? Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. 